the space outside of the 10 to 12 hours that you spend at work. It's the beer that you get. It's the lunch that you have. It's the coffee break that you take. Those things, having candid conversations with people around the business and sometimes outside the business will allow you a more fulsome perspective on your job and and inform your job. Brian LeBlanc, who is a CFO that I worked with, you know, going and getting breakfast with him and asking him, hey, what would you do in this situation a couple years ago? And, you know, over eggs and toast, talking through that situation in that 25 minutes was more valuable than me racking my brain for days and days. So, so I think those sorts of networks and that, that ability to pick up the phone and say, you know, how did you do this are massively, massively valuable. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Level Up Your Leadership. I'm your host, Lisa Kristen, and every other week or so, I interview one exceptional leader to unpack how they created their success and to discover their recommended tools, tips, and strategies that inspire listeners like you to take your leadership to the next level. Today's guest is Brian Dennis, a superstar accountant who has quickly risen to senior leadership in accounting and finance roles across the globe. Brian started out at KPMG, which is one of the big four accounting firms, where he focused on assisting with large capital markets transactions in Europe and the U.S. And then Brian moved into private industry and has worked in several senior finance roles in the software and packaging industries. Brian and I got to discuss really in depth about his number one piece of advice for how to level up your leadership. And that's to develop genuine relationships because relationships are the accelerator for your career. Why? Because building trust and rapport with people can drive your career forward in a way that you couldn't possibly do without a network. It really helps to open lines of communication between colleagues, and that always leads to better team effectiveness and results. And a good word from a friend in your network can get you your next job, or get your next job interview at least. And mentors can help you to solve your problems in minutes instead of days or weeks or months when you're trying to solve it alone. So when you have people you can reach out to and you have relationships and you maintain those relationships, it can have a huge impact on your career. In this episode, Brian and I talk about why it's important to network, when's the best time to network, who are the best people to network with, and a lot of other tips for success. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Brian Dennis. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Level Up Your Leadership. I'm here today with Brian Dennis. Welcome, Brian. Hey, how's it going, Lisa? <laughs> the uh, master financier, I'd like to call you. <laughs> I think you're giving me too much credit for that one. <laughs> so, Brian, the first thing that I want to say is it's nice to see you again in person because I know we met back when you lived in Switzerland your first time around, your first stint here. Mm-hmm. And then you and your family moved back to the States, and you've only recently come back to Switzerland. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Uh, I guess by way of background, I am a uh, not quite a master financier. <laughs> I am a CPA, which is certified public accountant. So I am an accountant. Uh, this is my second stint in Switzerland. Background, I am an auditor. Started out with an auditor, did that for about six years back in the States. Wanted to expand my experience, came over here to London, then Switzerland. Decided to get out of public accounting, went back to the States for three years, missed the Swiss lifestyle and some of my friends in Switzerland, <laughs> and came back here about two years ago with a uh, privately held packaging company. And my first question is always, for anyone who works in finance, because I wouldn't say that I'm a finance master, mm-hmm. just working with the numbers day in and day out, what drew you to finance? Did you always <laughs> did you have a love of math? Were you like the kid in math class who was just like, I, I got I to gotta figure this out? Or maybe, maybe you just love money. I don't know. Well, um, I, gotta hear I mean, <laughs> I, I didn't uh, I didn't go into accounting because for altruistic reasons, let's put it that way. <laughs> um, I got into accounting actually on accident. I was a marketing management major in college and I didn't have any idea what that meant. I thought I was going to be a marketer or a manager. Um, <laughs> turns out only one of those was right. So I went and did what some marketing management kids do over a summer, which is uh, intern. And the only place I could find an internship that was marginally marketing or management related was working for Enterprise Rent-A-Car. 
So I spent a summer in a white shirt and tie uh, washing cars and trying to shove insurance down people's throats that didn't need it. Uh, (laughs) That made me realize one of two things. I didn't want to rent cars for a living and two, I couldn't sell my way out of a paper bag. (laughs) So so that summer, I uh, went into the registrar's office and decided to change my major to finance. Well, it turns out I was signing up for intermediate finance, signed up for intermediate finance, got my schedule, and it actually said intermediate accounting on it. So I could use that to get my major, and I was so stubborn that I'd never dropped a class, so decided to stay in intermediate accounting. I think we'll come back to that stubbornness later. I have a, t- <laughs> I have a feeling it comes back somewhere in your leadership style. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I, I, I think leadership would drive a little bit, but uh, my mom uh, is a controller. I said, I, I'll never forget sitting on my couch my sophomore year telling my mom I never wanted to be an accountant. And there I was in an in accounting class. And this was 2002, 2003. The economy in Portland, which is uh, where I went to college, wasn't the best and accounting firms were hiring. So I said, you know, what the hell? Why don't I switch to accounting, go into public accounting for a couple years? And this is when Sarbanes-Oxley first got instituted. And they were hiring, as, as me and a couple friends say, they were hiring anybody with a pulse and an accounting degree. So, uh, <laughs> check, so check. yeah, check, check both of those. So I stumbled backwards into accounting, said I was going to do it for a couple of years. Nine years later, I was a senior manager here in Switzerland, had worked in three different countries and just decided I didn't want to go the partner route for a variety of different reasons and then left into industry and worked in software for about three and a half years. And that's kind of how I became an accountant. Now, from a number standpoint, I pull out my calculator on my iPhone regularly at work. <laughs> so it's not just me. <laughs> yes, it's not you. So I am not a numbers guy. I I think really you have to have an understanding of numbers. You have to have an understanding of accounting, sure. But I'm not one of those guys where you can throw things at me and I instantly get it. I have to try real hard. <laughs> but what I found over the past couple of years is especially in accounting and finance, you're less a numbers guy and more an engineer of processes making sure things flow through the value chain of your company are appropriately reflected in your financials, but also more importantly, how can you drive an outcome via via finance or otherwise? So. I, I love that concept that you're actually an engineer because mm-hmm. it makes, gosh, it makes finance sound a little bit sexy where you're like, oh, but you're actually, you know, you're not just the numbers guy, you're the problem solving guy, you're reverse engineering problems, figuring out processes. And of course, finance numbers, it's all a fundamental part of business. <laughs> yeah, you know, and it's an outcome. It's an outcome of a process. You know, we often think of finance as big and sexy. And, you know, at least I grew up thinking, you know, these were the guys that were the movers and shakers. But really, at the end of the day, you're down and dirty and and talking to people that are that don't understand processes that that don't understand what the outcome is. And, and really, like you said, reverse engineering a process back to an outcome. I always thought in my family, you know, I have three siblings. I have an older brother and two older sisters. I'm the youngest. I thought the first oldest two, they took all the math genes because my brother has a PhD (laughs) in computer engineering. My sister is a doctorate in math education. She's a math professor. So I, you know, initially went into my career thinking, you know, I'm not great with finance. That's something I'm going to avoid. But I love the opportunity of what you're sharing is that finance is really for anyone, even if they have this idea that math isn't for them. Yeah. The, the people that I've seen that are most successful in finance at the higher levels are really those people that are able to understand the nitty gritty, but pull yourself back and look at it in the broader context of your business, the market that you're in, um, having a longer term vision on things. And it's much more esoteric than the the ones and twos on the page. And, you know, as I've gone through my career and where I'm at right now, it really becomes a function of translating the ones and twos into messages and numbers. And and I think in in my current role, I'm responsible for communication with our investors, also communications with our owners. And in the distinction between those people that are able to succeed in their career at this point and really the the people that are maybe have flatlined at a lower level are 
translating those numbers and things into a story. And that increasingly becomes important. You know, we think about presentation skills, we think about ability to motivate people. And all of those things are taking a reality and making it into a message that then you can drive forward for the company, for your team, for for yourself even. Yeah. Yeah. So your new title is Chief Financial Story Officer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Chief Financial Story Officer. I, I, I probably wouldn't want to tell my boss that, but... Uh, <laughs> But there, there is certainly a component of that, and and being able to, I, I think you know, we get into it a little bit later. But but just sustaining a, a message and a theme and an idea for a variety of different stakeholders, and I think that's very important. And how is it that you find this story? Like, what are the actual ways that you can look at financials and say, here's a story that I'm seeing, here's a pattern that I'm seeing, here's this, here's how it's going to make sense to people who aren't in the nitty gritty. Yeah, it is tough because a lot of people have a have a tendency to look at the numbers and say, what is the story that's there? And really, the, the story of the, of the numbers and, and the company's trajectory starts before the results. So for me, it's very important to reach out and be very involved in a variety of other stakeholders, be it the head of R&D, be the head of business development, going out to our different locations around the world and talking to them openly about the challenges that they face, the things that they're trying to drive, because those initiatives, macroeconomic impacts, those things are going to drive the numbers. So really, by the time I get the numbers, I know what the outline of my story is, and I just need to fill in the actual answers. So it's less about sitting with inside of your spreadsheets, and it's more about stepping back into leadership opportunities, leadership conferences where you're meeting with people from across your your company and understanding the story that they want to tell. And then that really uh, then drives, once the numbers finally come in, <laughs> what uh, what the story is I'm going to tell outside the building. Yeah. And you know, this podcast is called Level Up Your Leadership. So we're always looking for tips and tricks on what's going to help leaders take their skills to the next level. And what you just described is actually a really great tip that I've never heard is even in financials, you're working on the story and you're working on how to communicate it. What makes sense? How do you make these numbers come alive in a way that people can understand and work with them. And that you see your job as this strategic stakeholder across all of these different, you know, R&D and looking at marketing and knowing the numbers really in a a different way than just the numbers themselves. Yeah. So what would you say is your number one piece of advice for leveling up your leadership? Would you say it's related to that or is there something else? I think for me, if I take that example, and just in general, if I think about my career, how I've leveled up my leadership along each level, it is relationships building rapport with people that sometimes you don't actually think you quote need today. In order to be better at your job, you need to know what other people are doing and how it impacts what you do. And the only way that you truly will get that is the white space, the, the space outside of the 10 to 12 hours that you spend at work. It's the beer that you get. It's the lunch that you have. It's the coffee break that you take. Those things, having candid conversations with people around the business and sometimes outside the business will allow you a more fulsome perspective on your job and, and inform your job. And you know, long term, you have to build trust amongst an organization, amongst uh, the people that you work with and for, so they trust you to give you more responsibility. And building rapport at all levels, be it the people below you, the people above you, is massively important to drive your career. And and why do you think? So, of course, I'm a leadership trainer. So, of course, I go into every organization and I say to them, communication is key, network, building your stakeholders, mm-hmm. literally almost verbatim what you've just said. So, Thanks for sharing that okay. message. <laughs> yeah. And yet, the number one problem that companies face is that their leaders aren't taking the time to do that. So what do you think was able to convince you, this is worthwhile? Okay, yes, I already work 12 hours a day, and yet I still want to go grab a beer with someone because it's that worthwhile, makes that much of an impact. Yeah, I mean, I I think I've been informed from a variety of different leadership treatments or otherwise that that have hammered that home. But frankly, nothing has been more galvanizing than failures I've had from lack of communication. Lack of communication, and I guess I would say rapport as well, open, honest feedback gives you communication that allows you to do your job. I think coming through public accounting where you have a very similar group of people 
uh, working together, it's very easy to build rapport. You have very common career aspirations. You don't have to think about how to motivate people, build rapport because you naturally have it. You know, these are the people that are, that are in your weddings, that you're going to their weddings. You work 14 hours a day with, and then you want to spend the night, you know, going out and drinking with them. So then quickly leaving public accounting, I had a much more diverse group of people working for me and around me. And what I realized is that I didn't work as hard as I should have to connect with them to open the lines of communication. And my first job out of public accounting, God love my best friend. She was my my boss and and, and she was very patient with me. But I, I would say, you know, my first six months in that role were borderline on being a failure. Uh, and the reason being is, is I didn't communicate with my employees. I didn't emphasize the connection that I needed with them to for them to come to me with issues that they were having for for ways to improve what we were doing, just to purely say, Brian, you're a pain in the butt and you know, you're burning down the team. I didn't have that. And 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 I think that was a very it was a huge lesson for me on understanding what motivates people and understanding the thing that got to got you to where you're at today from a leadership communication isn't going to take you forward. And, and I think that was the moment where I, I, I realized that my leadership style needed to adapt to the team that worked for me and that I worked with. And sometimes they didn't want to get a beer. And sometimes <laughs> sometimes it, it was it was a different way of opening opening the communication channels with them. And thank you so much for sharing that learning can come from failure because a lot of times as we're moving up the leadership trail, we don't want to admit defeats or we don't want to admit failures. And hearing you say it was a failure, but you know, my favorite phase is failing up, which means you learned something from it and it's actually informed and changed your leadership style. And I'm glad that you did that for us so we don't have to make that same mistake. <laughs> but, um, you know, you made a, a really great point about what got you here, what got you to this point in your job, and what worked so well isn't always going to serve you as you get higher up in the chain and as you're changing companies or as you're working with different people and really as you have different responsibilities because your responsibilities as you go up higher is motivating people, for example, and not really just doing the work. So do you notice anything else that's changed for you as for what worked for you in the past and what you've had to tweak or what you've had to change moving forward as you've gone higher up in the organization? For me, one of the things that has changed is understanding the, the flexibility of being a leader on a day-to-day -day basis. In finance and accounting, oftentimes we we have immediate and long-term situations. So leading through a, a minor crisis or a tight deadline, being a task-oriented leader there and motivating people there is going to be much different than a long-term project. And, and I think one of the key things that I learned, especially coming out of public accounting into what I call a mainline corporation, was that I needed to flex my leadership style in different situations. Again, it, it was a great microcosm, my first job out of, out of public accounting. Um, it was a great experiment for me. But what I was trying to do is, is do what got me there. And, and that just ultimately was not as successful as it could have been, let's say. <laughs> uh, we can call it a failure. But, uh, but I think being flexible because no one person that you work with, no day that you show up at work is the same. And I think understanding how to position yourself so your team and you succeed on a daily basis is something that you have to do. You have to understand what the situation dictates and flex into that that situation. You can't just be, let me back up, any person that has an ethos of what their leadership style is and and says something very rote and straightforward is lying to you and and to and to themselves because there is no one leadership style there is no one leadership way that is going to allow you to succeed along the vast continuum as as your career goes goes up you have many different stakeholders many different situations so you need to be flexible and understand what's going to work for your people but also just to to get the job done and Brian, I, I, you know, of course I celebrate flexibility and leadership and, you know, my big thing, I, I call it leadership agility, mm -hmm. you know, same concept, which is every situation is different. And I think what causes a lot of stress for leaders and even for employees is a new situation comes in and we're worried, oh, I don't know how to handle this or, you know, it's, it's constantly changing. 
And in fact, when you think of yourself as being able to change and flex with the situation and you're going, well, it's changing, but I'm changing too. You know, if you're swimming in the ocean, a wave comes, some are big, some are small, some are, you know, coming every three seconds apart, some are six seconds apart. But if you know, I know how to swim, that's okay. Every wave that comes, you know how to work with it. You know how to adjust your style. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I forget what author it was that, that said it, but I think it was the the hard thing about hard things, which, which is usually my tome that I come back to. But but the difference of, of being a leader and, and swimming through those waves, where sometimes you have to be a wartime leader and sometimes you have to be a peacetime leader. If you think about situations that are somewhat longer, if you're at a company that is going through troubling times, you need to make hard decisions. And sometimes unfortunate decisions that may lead to people on your team leaving. That's going to be much different than motivating a a team and a company that's quickly growing in in a fantastic market. And and the difference is, is that you need to understand that the wartime leader isn't going to work in a peacetime and a peacetime isn't going to work in a wartime. The unfortunate thing there is, and in a reality that I don't think a lot of us think about is you may be uniquely unsuited to be one of those two things. And you need to be honest with yourself that, yeah, I want to be here. I want to be at this company. I want to be part of its success as it comes through a tough time, or I want to be part of the success that's not in a tough time. Sometimes it just doesn't work. It's just, you're not suited for it. And, and I've seen it before in my career where we had a CEO that was promoted and a very fantastic person, great motivating leader but the the CEO was promoted at a time where we needed a wartime CEO. We needed someone that, you know, to steal from the godfather, you know, to go to the mattresses. <laughs> and we needed to be ruthless. And it wasn't about messaging. It was about making tough decisions to, to propel the company into a successful spot. Now, the CEO at the time was great about developing the culture at the company, keeping, frankly, the company together through that hard time. But ultimately, you know, that company underperformed, I would say, to its potential, was sold at, you know, maybe an okay, okay situation. But the CEO at the time was not the one that we needed. And we didn't want to look each other in the eye and say, the one that we need is not the one that we want. (laughs) And that's, and that's a tough concept from a leader point of view. And how do you develop both sides? I mean, are they, um, I have to read this book. Um, (laughs) Do you see them as conflicting goals? Or do you see on a continuum that one leader could really easily create more and peace success? Yeah, I, I fundamentally believe that you can't be both. At the highest level, you cannot be both. It, you know, it's it's like a company trying to go and hold the the high end and the low end of the market. You know, where where their products are trying to satisfy two separate things. Rarely do you end up succeeding at either, and you end up in somewhat a, in a mediocre sub suboptimal position. So, from my point of view, I I think you have to want to be one or the other. And, and this kind of goes into my authenticity of leadership, but where where you're trying to be trying to be something that you are not, it quite quickly will come through to the people that you work with and work for, and you're just going to end up not being successful at trying to be something you're not. So don't spread yourself too thin. Don't try to be everything to everyone and don't try to be what you're not. So uh, of course, I have several questions, but the first one is, which one are you? <laughs> are you a war or a peace leader? Uh, I, I would say certainly I'm, I'm more of a wartime, you know, in accounting and finance, it's always a deadline. It's always a, there's always a question about why this number went one way when we expected it to be the other. So, so oftentimes it's minor crisis management and, and accounting and finance in and of itself is always going to be a deadline. So you always have, as I say, you always have a gun to your head and you're always moving quite quickly. Now, don't get me wrong. I I like the peacetime a little bit, <laughs> the vacations, the the uh, stepping back and in and, and driving longer term strategic things. But but I'm honest with myself that I'm not I'm not the chief marketing officer that's going to get up and give a rousing uh, you know go team speech for a half an hour. I find you quite motivational. I don't know about that. <laughs> So what do you think are your skills for being a, a wartime leader? You said that you get to make hard decisions. You're always on crisis. Yeah, I, I think the skills for wartime is is understanding what needs to be accomplished and being massively disciplined in achieving 
the short-term objective, meeting the deadline, understanding the, the 14 things that need to get done to get there, whether they overlap on top of one another or have to be done in, in sequence. It's really having that that short-term tactical vision, understanding, you know, previously we talked about building the rapport, understanding which phones I need to pick up to call which people to get an answer. And also sometimes just having to motivate people when they don't want to be motivated. You know, a call at four o'clock on Friday for something that's going to require a little bit of weekend work. That's a challenging thing as, as an empathetic person. You don't want someone to have to work the weekend, but sometimes you have to be the hammer that comes down and says, it's going to have to happen and I'm sorry. And that's challenging as a leader, knowing you're going to impact someone's personal life when they hadn't hadn't anticipated that. So that skill, although being empathetic is, is a huge part of the job in, in building the rapport, sometimes being results focused results in you having to push that aside. And also, yeah, I hear that a lot that, you know, obviously your results focus, your deadlines never go away. You always have reporting deadlines. You have to let your numbers be made public at some point, et cetera. So you never really get a break, (laughs) especially if you're a wartime leader who is very results oriented. How do you sort of take a step back or, you know, how do you juggle lots of different projects or? I don't have a good answer for that. Um, I, I've still never really been able to to fully do that because my my personality is such, and, and the thing that has gotten me here is meeting those deadlines, and then when I do have the white space, pushing forward strategic, um, longer term projects. So, if my hair is not on fire, I don't know what I would do. <laughs> and and as and as a result of that, I, I don't. I don't have a good answer for you. And, and you know, as a moment of self-reflection that, that I often do, I, I need to figure that out for my own long-term motivation and, and, you know, certainly help. The thing that has gotten me here, I would say in a fairly short amount of time is, is those things and pushing those, those tasks, those deadlines, those some, sometimes longer-term strategic things along. And I need to maybe step back and realize it doesn't all need to get done yesterday. And do you think of that as part of your growth as a leader that you say, okay, I pushed, I pushed, I pushed, I pushed, I pushed. I got myself, you know, really far, really fast because you're still fairly young. I won't give away your age, but (laughs) – and so, you know, you push and push and push. Is the next stage of leadership, like what's coming next for you? Do you see it as staying in the same sort of grind? Do you see it as branching out? Are you going to write a book? Are you going to launch a podcast? What's (laughs) – what are some dreams you have for your future? Yeah, for for me, I think on a, a personal and professional level, I certainly need to focus on leverage. I think that the as you go up higher and higher, you need to let go of the God complex and increase leverage. And on a personal and professional level, those two things, which which seem frankly intuitive, are things that you have to then focus on on a day to day basis. The higher up you go in an organization, you're not an individual contributor. So keeping the idea that you are an individual contributor will only lead to your your demise. And the thing that I've seen even in corporations and people above me is I have seen a lack of leverage and I have seen what that does to leaders and it burns people out. And I think it's it's one of the things, one of the key takeaways for me in thinking about leveling up leadership is making the hard decision sometime to say, okay, here I am. I'm the last person in the parking lot. Why is that? I have an entire team. What am I doing wrong? It's not blaming the people around you. It's more of a function of saying, am I not giving other people around me the opportunity for them to level up, to to increase their profile, to widen their experience? And the challenging thing oftentimes is when you come into a corporation new, and, and I've done this now, I've moved roles in the last five years, five times. Yeah. So it's it, it's been quite challenging to, to step in and understand what needs to get done, complete the task that needs to be done. And where I've, where I've had failures over the past couple of years is not quickly moving on personnel issues that I've identified quite quickly. So in my role, especially in finance, it's 
you focus on the deadlines and you need the pieces in place to get it done. Well, sometimes those pieces may be, you know, square peg round hole. It's getting the job done. You identify that quite quickly or you should be able to identify it quite quickly, but yet you're not moving that person out of the organization quick enough. So I need to meet that deadline every 30 days. And then I quickly identify someone that doesn't fit the role. It may be a short-term pain, but I need to replace that person. And it sounds ruthless, but it's really more, it's a, it's better for the company. It's better for yourself sometimes to, to go through the short-term pain to, to see the growth longer term. And I would guess it's actually in the long term better for the employee because if they're not a fit, it's like, thank you for letting someone know that they're not going to be the right fit because they're going to struggle for a long time and they're going to end up demotivated and then either leaving on their own or you know, really stressed and unhappy. Yeah. You know, the, the experience that I had, which was ultimately ended up being a a success, but it was very close to being a failure was where I had, I called him the, the, the man on the wall and, and he was my most trusted Lieutenant. He was there, he was protecting me and making sure that my numbers were right. And he led a team of very motivated and highly intelligent individuals. But unfortunately his work style was not great and not motivating. And I knew, I knew it wasn't even like an intuition. It was people coming to me and telling me, Hey, this guy is doing X, Y, Z. I don't want to work here. And I spent more time talking those people down. And finally, when I realized, I mean, it was a stupid moment where, you know, I had five complaints into HR about this individual in a period of a week and it was close to being a coup. And ultimately I had to say, okay, I have to go through a short-term pain to keep all of these other good people. And, you know, I let this individual go and no shorter than three months later, I had a team that was operating at a much higher level, much happier. And, And these are still individuals that come to me today and thank me for doing that. But I, I knew for six months that I needed to make that move and I didn't, and, and I didn't make that, that hard choice. And, and, uh, the emotional taxation that that had on me during those six months of not doing that could have been avoided. And I, I would say it was a failure and then a, a ultimately a success, but making those hard choices, you got to do them sooner than later. And even today in my current role, you know, I think about on, on the way here, some of the things that I need to do and, and I battle with myself. If I, I want to go through that pain, I know in my heart of hearts that sometimes you got to make the hard decision there. Wow. That really encapsulates what every manager goes through, whether it's a hard decision, even if it's not a layoff or uh, anything to that extreme, but it's just, there's been a difficult conversation that we need to have. So many managers feel so uncomfortable with that, that they do end up putting it off, that they just stay busy with their work and they say, oh, I'll leave the personnel stuff later. And it ends up building. And it turns into a much larger problem. So your advice of rip the Band-Aid, <laughs> yes. make the harder decision now because it's actually the easier decision. And that can really make a difference in your success and in your team's success. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look at the continuity of not only yourself, but your team, I think that's oftentimes what we forget. You know, I, I thought about, gosh, if I let this guy go, what's that going to do to me? But I, it was it was quite selfish because I was ignoring what it was going to, the benefit that it was going to yield to the team and then inadvertently the benefit that it was going to come back to me on. And you have such a high level of self-awareness. You were saying earlier, you say like, man, I'm the last guy in the parking lot. What's What am I doing wrong? And you're saying, okay, I have a lot of empathy. I'm thinking, how is this going to affect me? But how is this going to affect the other person? And overall, you seem to have a really deep understanding and you s- spend some time reflecting. Do you have any sort of daily, weekly, monthly, yearly habits on your self-reflection or on how you get to better understand, better empathize with others where you sort of build and hone that skill? I I don't think there's, uh, this is probably something that frankly I need to work on, but there isn't a a time where I do that self-reflection in a structured way. I'm not journaling. I'm not sitting down. I'm not taking a step back sometimes at work the half an hour to say, okay, what worked, what didn't work this quarter and what can we improve upon? For me, I have white space given my commute um, is somewhat of a passive commute. And frankly, I think I spend a lot of that time listening to just a stupid Spotify channel where I can look out the window and I just think about these things. And whether that's structured or unstructured, I think that's that's how I, I reflect on him. But there's no 
no structure in my life that I have on it. Unfortunately, I can't offer a lot of insight on that other than to think that I do care about the people that I work with. I want them to be successful. And, and I think if I look back in my career where I started, the only way I was successful in my career was I had people above me that invested in me and believed in me. And I'll never forget being a year and a half into my career, having a gentleman that we called the professor. He was a partner down on the Silicon Valley. And he allowed me to go toe to toe with a partner in our national office on a topic that I had no no business talking to him about. But what I guess what I'm saying is he had empathy towards my desire to drive my own career. And he gave me that opportunity and he reached out. And And as I think about the impact that I have on people on a day-to-day basis, I go back to that and say, you know, someone took a chance on me. Someone saw something that I wanted to do and gave me that opportunity. So when I think about the decisions I make on a day-to-day basis, I think about how that impacts the people and their personal, their professional in other ways. And that's really kind of, I would say, my bedrock that I go back to. Yeah. So you do then a lot of the reflection sort of in the moment. So maybe you've developed such a habit that it comes almost automatically as you're looking at situations. Like you said, you conjured this vision of your mentor who gave you some freedom and space to sort of develop your own path. And that that's a reminder for you and you just sort of instill it in your day-to-day moments. Every day that I wake up, I think about how I'm going to position myself with my team, within the company, within the context of what needs to be done and what I think should be done. And and that is a challenge every day. And And I've never had it in my career where I don't wake up and think to myself, okay, what needs to be done? How challenging is that going to be? How am I going to succeed in the 10 to 12 hours that I have in front of me? And what challenge am I going to face when I talk to the CEO or the CFO or otherwise in positioning those challenging topics? And and I think as I self-reflect on that every day, it's you call it a drive, you can call it stress, you can call it whatever you want, but there's certainly a motivating factor that exists within that daily positioning. And I go back to something I, I heard recently, which I thought was fairly profound which is the head of Deloitte Consulting, uh, she was talking in Davos. And she said earlier in her career, she had the opportunity to take over a business unit that wasn't doing that well. And one of the lead partners of that business unit, she approached and, you know, she said, hey, you know, Dave, what's going on here? You know, and, and you know, what are the challenges that you're facing? And, and he said, well, you know, I, I don't know why we're not succeeding. It's just not that hard. And for her, that moment was just kind of like one of those, well, it should be hard. You know, we have to do hard things as professionals every day. And, and, and if it's not hard and if you're not positioning yourself for success every day and you're unsure about what you're doing, you're not motivating yourself or you're not understanding the full picture of what's in front of you. And to the extent that you get complacent and comfortable, sometimes that, that may be fine. That, that may be fine for the rest of your career, but, but you need to be okay in, in saying it shouldn't be that hard or it should be complacent. And then understanding four or five years later that that was the moment where you said, hey, I took a step off the fast track and I'm okay with that. But don't ever look back four or five years and say, I didn't make that hard decision and I, and I didn't lean into that, that hard thing and then have a regret for that. And it's almost, you know, you're bringing a consciousness to it where you're saying, hey, take a look right now. Is your job really hard? And by the way, if it's really hard, that's good. (laughs) And if it's not really hard, you've become complacent and perhaps, you you know, you've taken yourself off the track and then you have the decision point, did I want to do that? Or oops, did I fall off? And then how do I get back on? Yeah. One of the things me and especially one of the peers that I had back in the U.S. often questioning each other over beers was at some point we we didn't like who we grew up to be and and i don't mean that in a negative way but you know peter pan grew up all of a sudden and he didn't like who he had become and we looked at each other and we we had become afraid of the positions of getting the positions that we actually wanted mm-hmm. and and almost in an unconscious way we had motivated ourselves and pushed ourselves into places that you know, in a fairly young age and twenties and thirties where we looked at each other and said, self-reflecting, holy crap, I I didn't want this, this early. I mean, (laughs) and then, and then here you are in your early thirties thinking, 
can I do this for another 35 years? <laughs> and I think you have to understand, you have to look above you, not only in the company that you work in, but in future companies and say, do I want that guy's job? Do I want to do what that lady does on a day-to-day basis? And if the answer is yes, then fine, go for it. But don't be afraid of what it means sometimes to become something you're you're unsure of, especially in your profession. Now I have to ask, you said earlier you've taken five different roles in the last five years. So every time you show up, do you show up like sure that this is sort of what you want? No. Um, I mean, from a advice standpoint, be damn sure you know what you're getting yourself into every time. <laughs> uh, because with the exception of maybe one of those moves, I, I had an idea and reality was was somewhat different. Now, I, I should say for the benefit of every role that I've taken in the past, I would not have done it any different. Sometimes would I have liked to, you know, maybe not cancel a vacation or otherwise? Sure. But but I would not give up where I'm at today for any of any of those items. Every time I show up in, in a new job, I am effectively an imposter. And every move that I've made geographically or in a role, I have known how to do maybe 60 to 70% of what the jobs are. And that also drives you. You you know, if you're taking a lateral move into a job, you're not going to learn anything. You're not going to grow your career. You're not going to pick up the phone or be called to do something that will expand your career. And, And I think having the mentality that every day someone's going to pull back the curtain and say, aha, <laughs> you don't actually know how to do this job. But but I think maybe it maybe it's the God complex that I have or otherwise, but I, I believe I can do things that I'm not trained or know how to do through through hard work, using my network, reaching out to other people, and frankly, just asking stupid questions sometimes in a situation will allow you to take those things on. So at times it hasn't been the best for my mental sanity, but but it certainly has, has helped my career. And now all of those imposter-ish sort of things are, are my day-to-day work and, and things that I know how to do. What stands out for me is, and I really appreciate that you show up day one, I'm an imposter. I only know how to do 60% of this job. So many people would be too scared to ever take that risk. And you take it knowing full well, okay, basically every time I show up for a job, I feel this way. It's going to feel terrible. It's not great for my mental health. But I just have this true, you call it God complex, I'll call it (laughs) (laughs) self-belief. I just have this belief that if I work hard, if I tap into my networks, I know it's going to be hard, but I can do it. And that seems to really um, drive you in a place where others would say, I can't do it. I don't have the self-belief. So how do you, how did you build that self-belief? The the bedrock of that self-belief came from initially, I, I can't beat the drum of, of how beneficial public accounting was for me. Every single job that I went on, every single promotion that I got, you were taking on more and more responsibility and often very challenging situations. So the entire culture that I quote grew up in for my, the first part of my career was a culture of, yeah, we, we know you're not going to know how to do this, but we're going to help you learn how to do it. And you know what? We believe in you as a person and as a professional, and you can grow into that. So in a culture where it was accepted and understood that you're not going to know 100% of what you're doing, but eventually we all learn how to do it and it's a hierarchical, you know, you learn how to do your job as you continue up the ladder. The organization understood it and, and, and believed that that was okay. So then if you step out of that warm cocoon of, of public accounting, you then take that forward almost on an individual basis. Now, you know, what I don't talk about are the the mentors and the sounding boards and the the network that outside of any role that I've had, you know, I'm going out, I'm talking to those people, I'm saying, here's a challenge that I'm facing, and they're helping me along. So even though I'm outside of that quote, warm cocoon of public accounting, I still have my network and the people that believed in me throughout my career to go back to, to help me through that. What you bring up is really interesting about networks, because when I thought of networks, I thought of a typical like professional networking event. You go and you meet some people or internal, you have to meet this person to make the job happen, et cetera. And it's sort of a formal relationship. But what you just described as part of your network is really close and meaningful friends, mentors, 
that within your network, it's almost like the supportive role that your family plays as well. And most people don't actually talk about how critical it is to have this support network. Can you say more about your network and, and particularly that support network? I, I think the way that you describe it as a professional family is, is spot on. Whether it's our personal and professional lives, I think we have a tendency of believing that today the experience that I have and what I'm feeling is so unique. And it's really not. You know, I mean, unless, you know, you're putting a man on Mars, you know, you're really not doing something so new or unique. And, and so when I talk about, you know, my family, my professional family, my professional network, it's reaching out to them. It's just like asking your dad, you know, how'd you propose to mom when you want to propose to your fiance? Well, you know, he did it before. He's somebody that knows how to do it. He can give you advice. Doesn't mean you're going to do it exactly the same, but at least it allows you to frame the situation that you're in. And so I've always had a professional network and a group of professionals around me that, that are the people that, you know, that come to my wedding, that are, you know, the godparents of my, my children, that are the people that I like to spend time with outside the four corners of our job. And it doesn't work for everybody. And frankly, that's, that's suffocating to some people. But for me, it allows me to step back and say, you know, Brian LeBlanc, who was a CFO that I worked with, you know, going and getting breakfast with him and asking him, Hey, what, what'd you do in this situation a couple years ago? And, you know, over eggs and toast, talking through that situation and that 25 minutes was more valuable than me racking my brain for days and days. So, so I think those sorts of networks and that, that ability to pick up the phone and say, you know, how did you do this are massively, massively valuable. And I think what a lot of people forget as they jump well, at least some people that jump around like I do. But uh, when, when you jump from place to place is you view the people that you work with as transactional in, in the sense of, hey, we worked together, we did our jobs together. But then when you move on, you, you never pick up the phone or you never send an email or, you know, like mom says, you never call. <laughs> um, and, and I think it's very important to maintain those, not only for your future career, because those controllers that you worked with, those you know, chief of whatever that you work with, suddenly, you know, they're driving their careers just the same and they're going to come knocking and, and need a good resource. And, you know, sometimes if you're on the other end of that line, you get pretty lucky. How would you recommend that people go about? So let's say you're earlier on in your career. How do you go about knocking on doors and finding mentors who are a few steps ahead of you that maybe you wouldn't normally have access to? So you have access to colleagues or for someone who's looking to change industries or et cetera, how might you go about building that network and building a deep relationship and not just a handshake and a card swap? Yeah, I think early in your career, it, it's a focus on the immediacy. So if you're an associate or an assistant someplace and you want to drive your career, the person that's going to do that is not going to be the CEO or CFO of a company. You really have to think about your career in steps and in the way of you know, who can offer insight in the next two or three steps in my career? And, and those aren't the big steps. Those are the incremental steps, taking on, you know, people management responsibility, running huge processes, you know, things, things like that. And I think the focus needs to be almost in the immediate on the people that are your managers that are two or three steps ahead of you and developing those relationships. And then once you move roles, in all likelihood, those people that are two or three steps ahead of you are also going two or three steps above as well. So maintaining that. So I, I guess in answering your question, it's not about forming the relationship with the CEO of ABB, but it's about talking with, you know, a general counsel at a smaller company that that has moved her career along, and and that's and that's where you want to go and developing that sort sort of rapport. Now, how you do it, that's always challenging. Networking is a huge, huge skill that not a lot of people have. And frankly, people sometimes are very, very afraid of. Yeah. I think a lot of people underestimate partially driven by the fear or the awkwardness. I would even say that, that it's just sort of awkward to go to a new place, meet new people, speak to strangers, have a small talk, have some expectations. You're not sure, you know, you feel nervous and comfortable about that. So a lot of people choose the easier route of, oh, I'll just stay home or I'll socialize with the people that I know. But we know that you're a fan of going the hard route, ripping the Band-Aid off. It hurts a little bit in the beginning, but the payoffs, it sounds like, at least in your career, phenomenal. 
Yeah, I mean, professional dating, as I like to call networking. Um, it's been a while since you and I have, have uh, respectfully dated, given, <laughs> given how long we've had our significant others. But dating is awkward, whether it's on a professional or personal level. And picking up the phone and, and asking someone out to coffee is no more comfortable on a professional basis than it ever was on a personal basis. So I think we as humans like to avoid the hard things and and the awkward interactions, but you got to be awkward to eventually, you know, get to the place of of casual rapport. Yeah. And I don't think the awkwardness ever goes away, but you get more used to, I'm going to feel awkward. Just like in your new role, okay, another new role, another imposter syndrome day, fine. You gain a level of acceptance with those things. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's an emotional state that you fortunately or unfortunately, take as normal, you know, at, at some point. Brian, we, we could talk for hours, but, uh, you know, we are running out of time. I do always have one last question, which is, is there a question that I didn't ask you or, or something that you want to share that we haven't covered yet? I, I think the question that I would ask or think about, which is for someone that's coming up in their career, what's the right time to understand what you want to be when you grow up? And, and and what what I mean about that, and it's a little bit of self-reflection, but there's a reason that companies only have a handful of people at a C-suite. And oftentimes in our career, we all come in and say that we want to be the CEO, CFO, CMO of a company. And, and I think what's important is people have a keen understanding on a personal and professional level what they want to be when they grow up. As my mom always says, she's coming up on retirement now. She's like, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. And it's funny and and it's good, but you got to have a keen understanding of, okay, what's the balance of things that you want out of your life? Not only on a, on a leadership standpoint, but you know, from a making dinner on the weekend, spending time with your loved ones, what's the balance of those things and constantly reevaluating the balance of where you spend your time. And, and knowing, okay, I'm happy to be here at this level in a great job or maybe, you know, a great job, but a fantastic balance on, on the other side of things. So having good self-reflection over time is very, very important. And I just, I have to ask, what do you want to be when you grow up? I don't know. <laughs> we'll work on that. We'll work on that. <laughs> you yeah. can come back at the, at the yeah. another time on the episode. Yeah. And let's, let's have an update call <laughs> next time, huh? Thanks so much, Brian. All right. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks for listening to another episode of Level Up Your Leadership. If you're interested in learning more about today's guests and the topics we've discussed, check out the show notes on www.lisacristin.com slash podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please go to iTunes to subscribe. While you're there, it'd be great if you could rate and review the show. And if you really like the show, I would appreciate it if you shared the word on social media. As always, thanks again for listening. Thanks again for listening.